As a fitting conclusion to our service today, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I didn't want that to catch you by surprise, so hopefully our study of God's Word will be good and fitting preparation for that as we acknowledge that Christ gave Himself up for us to provide atonement for us so that we could, even as we just sang, have full atonement so that we could be reconciled to God. And we're going to eat and drink in remembrance of that great work and be reminded of our rest in Him. Well, I think it's fair to say that most, most of us who are here right now are here because we value Christ. We value Christ more than most other things. Most of us are here right now because we value Christ. That's not true of everyone here. Some of us are here against our will. Um, or out of custom or tradition. But most of us are here because we value Christ. We value Christ more than a lot of other things. So we would say we value Christ above all other things. And that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense in light of the fact that the, the apostles said, you have the words of eternal life. It makes a lot of sense in light of the fact that Jesus, unlike others, could forgive sin. It makes a lot of sense that we would value Christ and be drawn to Christ and want to gather like this because Jesus gave himself up for us so that we might, again, have our sins paid for. It makes a lot of sense to say, I value Christ. I, I value being a Christian because how else could I have my sins forgiven? How else could I have a perfect high priest to represent me before God? How else could I be guaranteed resurrection other than through the resurrected Christ? And it's exciting and it's motivating. And when you hear the preacher talk like this, you're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully. But there are times when it's not so exciting. There are times when you face opposition because of your identity with Christ. And sometimes the, the, the opposition gets pretty, pretty big and significant. And, and there are times, let's be honest, when it seems like the last thing we would want to be are Christians. The last thing I would practically value is association with Christ and being a follower of Christ. So many times it feels good to be a Christian. But there are times when it doesn't feel very good at all to be a Christian. And your life would go better if you weren't one. At least in the short run. What's amazing is Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this. He knew it when He was here on earth. We're going to see this morning in Luke chapter 12. You can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. Jesus is more popular than ever. At this point in time, for these followers of Jesus, it feels good to be a Christian. Jesus is the man. Jesus is, is valuable. Jesus gives so many great things and so many great benefits. He teaches like no one else. So you can call yourself a follower of Him. Jesus heals in a way that, that others can't. And, and, and Jesus is amazing. Jesus will fill your belly. When there's no food, there are a lot of benefits with being associated with Jesus. But having just locked and loaded against the religious leaders of the day, having just lambasted the Pharisees, Jesus knows that it's not going to be pleasant to be a disciple always. 
Jesus knows he's going to the cross and he knows it's not going to go so well for followers of Jesus. And there's a lot we can learn from that. We're not living in the first century. Jesus is not on earth. He's at the right hand of the Father. But we can certainly understand as followers of Christ, as disciples, to learn something about how Jesus taught these disciples. Sure is fun to be a Christian sometimes. It's not always fun to be a Christian. So how do we prepare for that? How do we, how do we see straight spiritually and not lose our way? Luke chapter 12 is going to help us with seeing straight, if you will. We'll look at verses 1 to 12 this morning. We'll see three warnings to disciples. Three warnings to followers of Jesus. Three dangers of discipleship, if you'd like. Number one is going to be hypocrisy. It's going to be hypocrisy. Jesus is going to warn about hypocrisy and the danger for us, for disciples then, for disciples always. Let's go ahead and jump in and beginning in verse 1. In the meantime, so just transitioning off of the, the pronouncing of woes against the religious leaders. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, to his followers, first, beware. Be vigilant is the idea. And it's even worded in such a way in the original text, keep on being vigilant. This, this, I'm, I'm issuing this warning and it stands. Keep on being beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is, and he explains why. It has to do with, with what he's going to say. No, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So, warning in verse 1, verses 2 and 3, he gives an explanation. Explanation basically being because God is omniscient. God, God, God knows everything, and so it doesn't do you any good to be fake. Beware of being fake, because that's what hypocrisy is. Um, in a non-kind of ethical context, the word hypocrisy just means actor. And so for, for the award show that we're all going to clamor over, they're going to get awards for being the best hypocrites. Now that sounds mean and nasty, and that's not the intent. They're the best pretenders. They can play that role that actually doesn't match who they really are, but they can play that role so well. So it's not a bad word in and of itself. We give awards for hypocrisy. Sounds funny, I know. But we give awards for actors and actresses. Jesus, in an ethical sense here though, says, beware of hypocrisy. Beware of trying to show yourself to be someone and someone who you really aren't on the inside. Beware of hypocrisy. And Christian or not Christian in the right context, in an ethical context, we don't like hypocrisy. We, we value things, at least we say we do, like authenticity. Really wants you to really be who you really are. And rightfully so. Rightfully so. Christians know this. Non-Christians know this. We could go to passages in the Bible that, that talk about hypocrisy in general and how we want to avoid it. I want to submit to you this morning 
that Jesus is warning about a particular kind of hypocrisy. This isn't just garden variety hypocrisy. We could go to other passages to talk about that. It really is true. You should try to really be authentic and be genuine and don't say one thing but actually do another thing. Uh, we, we don't want to be those kinds of people. We don't want to be double-minded people, to use another biblical phrase. But I'm going to encourage you this morning to realize that he's not talking about general hypocrisy. He's talking about a certain kind of hypocrisy. And the reason I think that's so is because of what he says at the end of verse 1 when he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Let's put some emphasis on that word, which is hypocrisy. I think he's particularly warning people like us of the danger of Pharisee hypocrisy or Pharisaical hypocrisy. Pharisee acting. And I realize, I mean, it's almost noon, so we should all be awake by now. You've had time to get a little bit of coffee in your system or Diet Mountain Dew or whatever you do. We should be awake enough to kind of think this one through. If you're going to get one thing today, maybe get this. We all know hypocrisy is bad, and it is. But if we think it's just garden variety, I think we might really miss something that's of great value to us. To really grasp the warning and why it's such a big warning. Question. What is Pharisee hypocrisy? What is Pharisaical kind of hypocrisy? The Pharisees were religious leaders of the day. They were professing Bible believers of the day. But what is their kind of hypocrisy? Well, I know how we can find the answer, and the answer would be in Philippians chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Philippians 3. An important cross-reference, I think, because Paul the Apostle used to be a Pharisee, okay? He's a recovering Pharisee. Hello, my name is Paul and I have a problem, okay? Hello, Paul. I mean, his issue is his, his Phariseeism. Now, that's not actually true, but it was kind of light, so I used it, probably shouldn't have. The, the idea is he used to be a Pharisee, so he knows what he's talking about, and he's going to compare what it means to be a Pharisee with what it means to be a true Christian. And as we look at that comparison, we'll be able to say, oh, that's what the Pharisee kind of hypocrisy is. It's a certain kind. And it's a real important one for us to understand if we're going to, go, if we're going to avoid it. So in Philippians chapter 3, we could start in verse 1. For the sake of time, we won't. He's talking about how his life used to be. How about verse 4? Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. It's self-confidence in your own abilities before God. Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, again, self-confidence before God, I have more. How about verse 5? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. Okay, he's one of those guys, so he can help us understand what this means as it relates to the law. How about down in verse 8? Indeed, I count everything loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them and I count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I want to slow it down here and have you really notice this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. What kind of hypocrisy is Pharisee hypocrisy? If you look again at verse 9, I think you can see, but I'm going to take a word out. I'm going to take the word not out. Christians, a true Christian, 
is relying on the righteousness of Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. But Pharisees, how about, let's take that word out, having a righteousness of my own. You see? A Pharisee thinks, is deluded into thinking that they're self-righteous. Meaning, I myself, if I'm a Pharisee, am inherently righteous. The word righteous has to do with law-keeping. So if you're a Pharisee, you think somehow you stand before God acceptable because you yourself are a keeper of God's law. I know what God's law says. I'm committed to it and I do it. Be a Pharisee. Is it true? It's not true. It's not true. We're not going to take the time to go there. We could go to all kinds of passages, but by the time you get to Romans chapter 3 and we see all have sinned, no one does true law-keeping, no, not one. No one does good in that sense, no, not one. A Pharisee says, I have a righteousness of my own. I have a law-keeping of my own. True? Not true. Not true at all. I'm professing to have something be true about me, you see? That isn't actually true. I'm claiming to be Pat the law keeper. God is pleased with me because I keep his law. And in reality, I don't. So therefore, I am a, what is it? Actor, right? I'm a pretender. To use the H word, I am a hypocrite. Because what I claim to be true of myself on the inside, I'm inherently righteous is not true in my practice. Now that's a long way around of grasping something. When Jesus says, beware of hypocrisy, beware of the leaven, it creeps in and contaminates everything, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, I want to suggest to you that it's a certain kind of hypocrisy. The kind that says, I'm good. I do good. I'm right. I'm righteous. I measure up and I, I do these things and God is going to accept me. That's pharisaical hypocrisy. And Jesus says, be careful. Be careful of that. Spreads. It's dangerous. It's bad. Christianity says we have a righteousness, a law keeping, not of our own. It comes from God, Philippians chapter 3 on the basis of faith in Christ, because Christ is the one who came to fulfill the law. I think it's important that we see that, because if we think, well, you know, hypocrisy, yes, it is bad, and everyone agrees that hypocrisy is bad, general hypocrisy is bad, but, you know, so so don't be that kind of person. Just make sure you're not a hypocrite. And as long as you're not a hypocrite, everything's fine. In a sense, that's pharisaical hypocrisy. In a sense, I think we all have to come clean with the fact that, how about this? We all are hypocrites. You most certainly, even if you're a Christian, you're, you're a hypocrite. Because what you, you profess to be a follower of Christ. And even if you're a pretty good follower of Christ, there's a gap between what you say, I'm a follower of Christ, and your actual following of Christ. In fact, there's going to be a gap until you're glorified, until you see Christ and are made like Him, you will be a hypocrite. Because what you say to be true, even if you're the most mature Christian on planet Earth, you're not yet glorified, will not match with who you really are, because you still sin, you still struggle. 
so I'm going out of my way to belabor this point. So that we might see the pharisaical kind of hypocrisy is the one that if you believe that, how about this? You can't be a Christian. If you're that kind of hypocrite, you, you can't be a Christian. Paul's contrasting Christian, not a Christian. It's such a serious matter because if you think you're inherently a lawkeeper, you're the kind of hypocrite that's not a Christian. Because you don't need Christ to be your lawkeeper, you see? I think avoiding pharisaical hypocrisy starts by acknowledging, Hello, my name is Pat and I have a problem. I am a hypocrite. Because there's a gap between what I say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and what I do. Therefore, I need to avoid pharisaical hypocrisy, get over having inherent righteousness, trust in Christ, and now we're on to something. I hope that helps. You say, man, I didn't know I was coming to theology class. Um, doesn't have to be complicated. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of that. Can Christians be hypocrites? <laughs> yeah, Christians can be hypocrites. Are we supposed to be? No, we're not supposed to be. It's actually not a good thing, and we, we can get scolded for it in the Bible. We're not supposed to be hypocrites, but in reality, we all are because there's a gap for all of us. But Christians can't be this kind of hypocrite. The kind that says, I am righteous. Because if you're that kind of hypocrite, you don't need Christ's righteousness. Beware of this. Why would he have to warn us? Because it's a reality. Because it's so dangerous. And how about this? How easy is it for you and for me to kind of float into that? It's so easy for us to float into that. Remember, the Pharisees are the Bible believers. They take the Bible seriously and at face value and they would be for truth. They would be for doing what's right. We should be too. But they had the scriptures to tell them that they're not righteous, but somehow they skipped that part and forgot. We can do the same thing. Here we are. Should we be for truth? We should be for the truth, objective truth. Should we be for obeying God? Yes, we should be for obeying God. Should we take the Bible seriously? Yes, we should. But then all of a sudden, it's, it's a half step, which is actually a zip code away from true Christianity when we think it's about us. I like this warning. It's a helpful warning. It's a warning we can feel. I think it's a real danger as well. And Jesus says, stay on the vigilant alertness. Because before you know it, even if you've got this straight in your head, you can communicate in such a way to other Christians or non-Christians, and they get the total wrong idea. Right? How many times do we hear somebody give their testimony, a.k.a. their bragamony? In the name of evangelism, I'm going to share my testimony. Well, I used to be a bad person. I used to be a sinner. And then God came into my life and changed my life. And now I'm a good person. Here's all the good things I do. Having a righteousness of my own. 
Let's not deny the fact that our life does change. Regeneration brings new life. There's fruit that's produced. But we have to also remember that we're still not inherently righteous. We still don't stand before God because we have a righteousness of our own because we used to be bad people and now we're good people. It's not true. When people hear you give your testimony, let's just put it that way, to tell your story, and I think it's good that we should all have a story. We should all be able to say, here's how God has worked in my life. Do they hear you giving pharisaicalism? I, 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 I. I think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says, we do not preach ourselves. I, 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 I. But we preach Christ. There's a huge difference, and I can just see it. You might have this straight in your head, but Jesus has to say, beware of that hypocrisy where you step over, and at best you have it straight in your head, but you're communicating it unclearly to other people. Warning, 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 warning. I'll be perfectly honest with you and say, that's not even true, is it? <laughs> I'll be perfectly honest with you. I, 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 I. I can't be perfectly honest with you because there actually is a gap between... Anyway, you get the idea. It's just a figure of speech. But it helped drive home the point. To be honest with you and candid, I'm, I'm kind of nervous to, to listen to old sermons on similar passages like this one that I've preached on. Because I'm afraid it would be too much. Hypocrisy is bad, which is true. And therefore, don't be a hypocrite. And God will accept you. Which is not true. Because we are hypocrites. And we just cut ourselves off from the gospel. And the need for Christ. Don't be a hypocrite while well, you are one. <laughs> you need a righteousness not of your own. Jesus warns about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees because they thought the righteousness was their own. Okay, long way around. Hope it's helpful. Thankful for spiritual growth. Let's move on. Second danger of discipleship is the, the fear of men and women. The fear of men and women. Jesus is super popular. The season's about ready to end. Being associated with Jesus means you're on the in. You're in the hip crowd. You're hanging out with the cool people. It's where you want to be. It's where everybody is who's anybody. Verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. Don't be afraid of those kind of people. Jesus knows what's on the horizon for them. And he says, don't be afraid of those kinds of people. Their power is limited. Verse 5 says, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Kind of a zinger, huh? Don't be afraid of humans. Don't be afraid of God. No, no, let me, let's just put fear in perspective. Don't be afraid of people who can just kill you. Be most afraid of those, of the one who could kill you and then damn your soul. You're like, wow. 
What's he getting at? Well, he's getting at, we're going to see, I think, ultimately. Ultimately, whose approval is the, the wise one to seek? Jesus knows what's around the corner. There's going to be hostility. He's going to promise it because they're associated with him. And he just went after the authorities. And he's making it clear it doesn't make any sense to seek ultimately the approval of men and women. You know, don't buckle under the pressure because you're afraid because they, you know, at worst could take your life. Not to mention the lesser reputation, relationships, all those kinds of things. Don't be afraid of them ultimately because all they can do is kill you. (laughs) Which is a big deal. Ultimate allegiance should be logically to God because He's the all-powerful one. It's it's pretty harsh. I mean, it's pretty black and white, but we get what he's saying. Um, It's no-brainer rationality. Who do we really want to please? Human beings? Peers? Friends? Enemies? No, you don't want to do that. Ultimately, you want to have the approval of God. But he drives home the point further. And makes the point clear, he's not just trying to say, okay, disciples of Jesus, be terrified of God. No, he, he, he speaks the truism, if you will, and he makes the potent, blunt point in verses 4 and 5. But that's just kind of the, the raw point of logic to shock us. But then he moves beyond shock value and he gets real personal and it warms our hearts. So let your heart be warmed by this. How about verse 6? Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Okay, relatively worthless, these birds are. That's, that's poor people food. Relative worthlessness. Lest you think Jesus is a bird hater, keep reading, verse 6. <laughs> okay. And not one, okay, not one of those almost worthless birds, not one of them is forgotten before God. So he hit the harsh reality to get our perspective and now he's going to warm it up and apply it to us and he starts with birds, relative worthless. But nothing bad happens to one of those birds apart from God's sovereign purposes. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. Why even the hairs of your head... Oh, he just went from worthless birds to people who have been made in the image of God. The crown of creation. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Remember he said, fear before. Don't fear those people. Fear God. But now he says, fear not. I I, I love the complexity of it. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. So good. Just the raw, be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because God cares for you. He doesn't say bad things will never happen to you. As a matter of fact, we're going to see that He's going to tell them that bad things are going to happen to Him. But He's making the point clear to these disciples, and I hope it becomes clear to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, don't be afraid. If God cares... For the sparrows? you got to know He has every hair on your head numbered and He cares like that. That's helpful. The fear of man is awful. It'll ruin your life. 
The fear of men and women is a horrible way to live your life. And if we were honest, we would probably all have to fess up a lot more than we're comfortable with. And he puts it in perspective. Not very powerful. Radically powerful. Oh, and he cares about you. Personal care. What a great perspective. What a great perspective when it comes to, am I going to be committed to Christ to the end? What a great perspective when it comes to, to standing firm for the gospel. Great perspective for Omaha Bible Church. Great perspective for you as a Christian. Great perspective for you at school. Great perspective for you in the cubicle. Great perspective for you on, and you fill in the blanks. I want to be wanted. I want to be accepted. Sometimes it's that. But other times it's, I don't want to be hurt. And it's that. Either looked at positively or negatively, or negatively or positively, whichever one. It's so good to know the whole man-pleasing, people-pleasing, especially as it would relate to Christ and compromising devotion and commitment to Him, it just doesn't even make sense. That's a helpful word for teenage Christians. That's a helpful word for elementary school Christians. That's a helpful word for hipster Christians. That's a helpful word for, you get the idea. All the way up to those who have no hair and are really easy for God to keep track of. We're talking about the God who has the power to damn people's souls forever. You think justice is going to win? Justice is going to win. And the judge is the ultimate one who's in charge. But he's not the one we cower before in fear because he cares for us. By the way, because of our connection to his son, he cares for us. Looking bigger picture. This is awesome. This is awesome to see. More than likely, no one in this room will be executed because of a profession of faith in Christ. Could happen. It's happened many, many times throughout history. There's severe persecution in our world not so much in our country when it comes to deny Christ or it's your life. But we're fooling ourselves if we don't think we're faced with being man and woman pleasers all the time because we are all the time. Even as it would relate to, am I going to show myself to show allegiance to Christ first and foremost or is my first and foremost allegiance going to be somewhere else? That's so true in your life, and it's so true in my life. Doesn't mean we have to be mean about it. Doesn't mean we have to be angry about it. I do want to speak winsomely insofar as I can. I do want to show kindness and love to the degree that I can. I want to remember that I have a righteousness not of my own. I don't want to fall into the, the pharisaical kind of hypocrisy in the way I come across in the name of being faithful to Christ. 
And I'm, again, not a prophet, but you, you and I have all kinds of opportunities in greater and lesser ways to show our allegiance to Jesus as our Savior. Just think about the realm of the moral realm or the immoral realm. You know, this is not, if this were a car, I'd say this is not my grandpa Chevrolet. Uh, it's not my grandpa or my grandmother's America either. You will have plenty of opportunities. Who do you fear most? Well, I fear God in the right sense, especially because He cares for me. Let's move on to the third warning that Jesus gives and then we'll wrap things up and we'll have a great time of eating and drinking in remembrance of Christ and what He's done for us. A third danger of discipleship is denial. Denial. He's going to go to a dark place and then He's going to bring us back into the light. So get ready to go to the dark place first. This severe kind of thing about denial. Verse 8 says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges Me before men... The Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. I want to just pause for a second. You can just put your finger there if you'd like. Remember, Son of Man. Maybe you don't remember. I'll tell you for the first time. But many of you just remember from Daniel chapter 7 is an official title for a king who would rule and reign forever. Okay, so the emphasis on that title is not the humanity of Jesus, even though it doesn't undercut his humanity. He really is a human being. It really is going to be a human being. But the amazing thing in Daniel 7 is, this, this king, like David, is not like David. He's like David because he's a human being, but he's not like David because he will rule and reign forever. To use a parallel title for son of man, it would be king of kings and lord of lords. The idea is, this is a, a, an official messianic title for the one who is the king. Okay, so that, that, that becomes important when we read it. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me, Jesus born in Nazareth, excuse me, born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man. Oh, he's the one we want to please because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the important one. He's the forever ruling, reigning messianic king also will acknowledge before the angels of God. Oh, okay, that, that, that's what we want. That, 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 that's what we want. We want to acknowledge Him because that means He'll acknowledge us. On Judgment Day, verse 9 says, But the one who denies me, I wrote in my margin, the Son of Man, exclamation point, before men will be denied before the angels of God. Gulp. Motivating. I don't want to deny him. I want to be for him because judgment day is coming. What's interesting is, is there's a pattern going on here. Jesus just gives the, the, the raw truth and then he kind of fleshes it out. He just did this earlier. We saw with the second warning, just the raw truth. And then he kind of branches out and explains some of the nuancing, if you will. Maybe that's not the right word. I mean, what's his point here in verses 8 and 9? Well, one day the, the real will be shown. If they're committed to me in life, well, I'll be committed to them. If they're not, then maybe they were just in it for the free food like some were. Well, their testing will reveal whether or not they're legitimate or not legitimate. And I want to just say before we go on to the next verses, 
I'm so glad there are more verses. You know who else is glad there are more verses? The Apostle Paul. Because by now, if that just stood as it is, and it's always wrong to deny Jesus, just for the record. It's always wrong. It's always black and white wrong. But if that's all that was said, Paul would never have become an apostle because he was high-handedly, tenaciously opposed to Jesus as the Son of Man. You know who else is really glad there are more verses? Peter is. Peter's really glad because he denies him. He denies him three times. So Paul does high-handedly, tenaciously, uh, aggressively. Peter does cowardly, having professed to be a follower. It's good there are more verses. They're both wrong. They're thankful for verse 10. We should be thankful for verse 10 too. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Huh. Yeah, Paul likes that a lot. (laughs) So does Peter. So does Pat. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whatever that means, and I think we can take a pretty good crack at it. And I don't think it's saying, ever saying anything bad about a charismatic person on TBN. I mean, it's probably not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Anyway, we don't get TBN on local TV here, so you're all protected from that, right? Is that true we don't get it? Whenever I travel in the hotel room, I always have to watch. Anyway, never mind. Um, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, where they have people on as hosts, and they lift them up who deny the Trinity. Go figure. Anyway, um, I'm just venting now um, some of my frustration. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's late. Some of you do. Thank you for making me feel good. All right. Whatever it means, we see there's denial is always bad. No brainer. But there are some who will deny Christ who will be forgiven. That's what the text says. But there are some who will not be forgiven if they commit a certain sin. It's called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in a second. But I won't lie, this is somewhat complex. It's not ununderstandable, especially reading things in the flow and look at the four gospel accounts and read things in the flow, but it's complex. So, is it good to deny Jesus? No, it's not good to deny Jesus. In fact, it means judgment. But there can be forgiveness for those who deny Jesus. And then we start looking at the narrative and we think, you know what? Makes me think about Judas. Makes me think about Peter. And we could talk and contrast what one did and what the other did and what made them different. What made them, most alarmingly, the same. We're going to save that for another time. We've done that on other occasions. But one thing we do know is Peter denied Jesus awfully. And there was... Not only remorse, there was repentance and there was forgiveness and restoration. No question about it. Judas denied Jesus and there was remorse, but there wasn't repentance and restoration. There's forgiveness for denial, 
But there's a certain kind of denial that doesn't bring forgiveness. One New Testament scholar said this this way, the difference between blaspheming the Son of Man and blaspheming the Spirit is that blasphemy of the Spirit is a permanent decision of rejection. Well, I agree with that statement wholeheartedly. It's nice and neat. Um, but that person doesn't have inherent authority either. So let's talk at least for a couple of minutes about what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. As you're looking at Luke 12, go back with your eyes or a page to Luke 11, verse 15, and I think this is what really seals the deal for us and helps us to understand. Back in Luke 11, verse 15, so we have a historical flow and context of things. 11:15, having seen all that Jesus did and the miracles and the forgiving and the teaching and objectively witnessing all of these things happening on planet Earth in the Middle East, verse 15 says, But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. I, and I'm in good company on this, think that's, that's key to understanding. When you see everything that he's done and you witness, you're eyewitness, you see that what the Holy Spirit inspired Old Testament said Jesus had to be and had to do, and then you see the Spirit-anointed Messiah Savior come and match and do with your own eyes, and you say, that's the devil. You're proving that there's no hope for you. It's not like God can say, well, but, but I have more. I have another son who's going to provide a different way of atonement. No, he, he's the one. This is the promise or the promises given to us by the Spirit. And now we have the anointed one, anointed by the Spirit to show that he really is the fulfillment. He really is the one. And they're seeing him objectively. And they say, he's the devil. That's an unforgivable sin. Because there's no other way to be forgiven other than through His atoning work. And I think Luke, I think, makes it clear enough. But when you look at the other parallel passages, it even gets closer in proximity. You don't need to turn there, but in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, and the scribes, I'm going to put emphasis there because the scribes are the Bible experts. We know the Old Testament. We know the Messianic prophecies. We know what the Spirit has inspired throughout the ages. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. (laughs) This is what the Spirit-inspired Scripture says. And they come to the exact opposite conclusion. And you say, but there's another way for them to be forgiven. Not if Jesus is the only begotten Son. The one unique Son there isn't. And so when we read on in Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3 verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, but whatever blasphemies they utter, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. I could be wrong. I'm not sure. There's plenty of disagreement amongst Christians. But I think grasping it is seeing the fullness of the Spirit's inspired revelation. The scribes were experts in it. They of all people would know. And then they meet it face to face, the anointed Savior, anointed by the Spirit, and they come to the exact wrong opposite conclusion. 
there, there, there's no other basis for forgiveness. It's the unpardonable sin. Then people ask the question, can it be committed today? I say no and yes. No in that Jesus is not here on planet earth. So in a proper sense, I'm not going to see him do these things. Yes, in a principalized sense, we read the scriptures. We have the New Testament to see the matchings, the historical events, matchings. Not only that, now I'm thinking like the book of Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 6 that we read from earlier, but in a different portion, we, we can experience all these great blessings of being a part of the church and seeing God transform people's lives and understanding the gospel and hearing the gospel explained and proclaimed and for someone to say, I reject it. The author of Hebrews says, then there's no hope for you. It's like the unpardonable sin. Because if you've witnessed it, experienced it, seen it, and you come to the conclusion, I reject it. There's no like trick hidden underneath the table that God's going to pull out and say, well then I can do this. The fullness of revelation came to earth. God has spoken in many ways, through many means. I'm thinking of Hebrews chapter 1. And in these last days, the author says, He's spoken to us through His Son. You can't get higher on the scale of revelation than the Son Himself. And so if you reject the Son, there's no hope for you is the idea. Pretty dark stuff. And Jesus is warning people like, like you and like me. Beware. Be careful. He ends on a, on a, a glimmer of hope and light. So I'm thankful for this. Knowing things are going to get bad. Notice what he says in verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues. Now I told you he was going to tell them it's going to get bad. Right? Hairs on your head numbered. Translation, he's not saying nothing bad will ever happen to you. Hairs on your head numbered. He cares for you. He, he, he oversees. When they bring you before the synagogues, with your hairs numbered. <laughs> Doesn't mean he's going to protect you from all hostility. It means he's there caring for you. He's in charge. Nothing can harm you apart from his perfect will. But when they bring you before the synagogues, the houses of worship, how about that? And the rulers and the authorities, do not be worried. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And if that Holy Spirit is sent by the Father who has your hairs numbered and cares about you, and is all-powerful and all-knowing. You can trust Him. You don't have to be worried about the persecution. Is what He's saying. Once again, this is a great opportunity for us to be able to see straight. Feels good to be a Christian right now. We're singing praise songs with a bunch of other believers. And this is awesome. I'm getting encouraged. And then there's all the other stuff and you go, man, being a Christian, I hate being a Christian. Is it worth it? 
so good that Jesus cares enough about us to say, okay, let, let, me, let me help you put things in perspective. I'm not giving you prosperity. This will never happen to you. When they bring you to the synagogues, God cares. Cares for you personally. So good. So helpful. This isn't heaven on earth. We're waiting for His return. I like it that we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And He instigated the Lord's Supper until He comes again. This isn't heaven. This isn't our best life now. This is, our, this is as worse it get, the worst it gets. And so we can see straight persecution. He cares for me through it. How long, O oh Lord? Come, Lord Jesus. And as we eat and drink, we're going to remember that our righteousness doesn't come from us. It comes from Christ. The Christ who's going to return and glorify us. And then we won't be hypocrites in any way, shape, or form. Isn't it good? All right, pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us not just to love concepts. Uh, help us not just to love truths. Help us to love Jesus because he loved us. Um, we're so thankful that when it comes to your love for us, it wasn't just the thought that counts. But that you actually sent your unique son to come here and to be the one who would provide forgiveness through his atoning sacrifice. Thank you that Jesus did everything right on our behalf. And then he was treated as if he had done everything wrong on our behalf. And that he's been raised from the dead. And that even right now he is seated at your right hand. His work having been accomplished. And he's there claiming us as his own. Even though we're busy struggling still with sin. As we eat and as we drink. May it be a great blessing to us. As we remember to rest in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.